Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast that champions women in history and puts them back into the history books. I'm Lindsay Shaw and today we'll be talking about the nightclub queen of 1920s London, Kate Merrick. Today our expert is Lucinda Gosling. Born in County Durham, she studied ancient and medieval history at the University of Liverpool before a career in the picture library industry. Formerly manager of the Illustrated London News Archive, she has been part of the team at historical specialist Mary Evans Picture Library for the past eight years. Lucy specialises in the social history of the First World War, 19th and 20th century royalty, high society and illustration. She's contributed to a wide range of publications and has published several books. She has spoken at various historical events on subjects including entertainment during the Great War, World War One knitting and fashion and more. Welcome, Lucy. We're here to talk about the nightclub queen of Soho, or at least London in the 1920s, Kate Merrick. Do you spell Merrick with an R-I-C-K or Y-C-K? It's M-E-Y-R-I-C-K. But apparently, originally, her husband was M-E-R-R-I-C-K. And sometimes in police reports, some of her children were written as M-E-R-R-I-C-K. I think they changed it to E-Y-R-I-C-K as a sort of aspirational thing, perhaps. Ah, interesting. I have perceived affinity with Kate Merrick because I've spent, a, well, misspent a lot of my time in Soho performing on the stages of various nightclubs and frequenting them in my time in pop bands and also cabaret and live entertainment. So for me, this is a fascinating subject, yeah. a fascinating area of London that I feel quite passionately about. Over to you, if it's okay to give us kind of an overview of Kate Merrick and why we should know more about her. Well, she was an incredibly interesting character. And for almost 15 years, she opened and closed and opened again and reigned over a number of nightclubs in the West End of London. She did this sort of much later in her life. She already had a family. She had separated from her husband. So she was doing all this with a large family. She had eight children in tow. I mean, they were grown up by that point. But nevertheless, I think it's a really interesting idea that a woman of that time with those responsibilities chooses to go into that. She was very notorious because she constantly was in a cat and mouse sort of battle with the authorities, with the law, the police, because her clubs often ignored licensing hours and served intoxicants after hours. And as a result of that, after several fines. She actually was imprisoned on five separate occasions. Then the height of notoriety was in 1928-1929 when she appeared in court alongside a Sergeant George Goddard of the Metropolitan Police and he was accused of taking bribes from Mrs Merrick and another nightclub owner, an Italian who ran, I think it was Uncle's nightclub. They were all imprisoned and Mrs Merrick was sentenced to 15 months hard labour. And hard labour for a woman in Holloway meant working in the laundry, basically. She had a very sort of conventional background. She doesn't seem like your typical nightclub owner and yet she gave this notoriety fame and you know she was greatly admired and loved by a lot of people she was the ultimate networker she knew everybody so when she eventually died you know the story is that Soho the West End lowered its lights on the day of her funeral in her honour so yeah it seems one of those characteristics that you need in order to be successful in that kind of world isn't it is to have fingers in pies and to know everyone and be on first name terms with the right people I think that's how it worked yeah she knew the nightclub owners who would bring people to her newly opened nightclubs and I think she was a very likeable character. 
just to give us a little bit more of the background, how did you get into knowing about Kate specifically? For the past 15 years, I've worked at Mary Evans Picture Library and we're a long-established historical resource for images. We've got a vast archive of all sorts of things, but in particular, we've got a very rich resource of illustrated periodicals dating from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. And they are probably one of the best sort of records of the times um, of anything. So alongside my day job of selling historical pictures to publishers and museums and whatnot, I also am a freelance writer and speaker and I've curated exhibitions. So I kind of do a little bit of everything and a lot of it channels back to work. And a lot of my inspiration for what I write about comes from things that I find in the archive at Mary Evans. So a few years ago, I was writing a, a short book on actually debutantes in the London season and I started to look at nightlife and socialising in that interwar period which is obviously really interesting and sort of off the back of that I got in touch with a lady called Lizzie who runs a really interesting consultancy called Odette Toilette and she is an expert on fragrances and she does events around fragrances and I suggested we did something together so we did a talk which was called Sex and Scandal of London Nightlife in the sort of early 20th century and I talked about different characters and different clubs and scandals and Lizzie brought out different fragrances that would go with certain people. I have to say now that Mrs Merrick never actually got her own fragrance but I think she needs one but that's sort of how I got very much into that area and it's often overlapped into various things I've done. So I've got more into her and I first became aware of her because we have box files of photographs at the library. I found this brilliant picture of her surrounded by lots of people all looking like slight reprobates and it was one of the occasions when she's released from prison there was always a big party when she came out to prison and it was this fabulous picture at the silver slipper club which is one of her clubs and i thought who is that woman of course it was an old press photograph so there's a bit of information on the back and also i'm sorry i'm going on a bit here but lindy woodhead who is a wonderful author she's written books on helena rubenstein and elizabeth arden also on gordon selfridge and so she was a consultant on the Mr Selfridge series and I know that she was very interested in Mrs Merrick and possibly considered that as a subject for a book. Um, unfortunately it hasn't happened but I think it should. I think it should too absolutely gosh it's rich for the pickings isn't it so Odette Toilette should be a burlesque name by the way that's a brilliant name I'm the one of my oh, no, it's she's really brilliant I would advise anyone listening to sort of look her up and see what she does definitely and that kind of immersive smells as you're telling the story sounds really fantastic really clever yeah I mean I always think if I could time travel one of the things that I would find most interesting is what everybody smelled like <laughs> yeah. You're probably disgusting a lot of the time, but but you know, you go into one of Mrs. Merrick's nightclubs and what the smells, well obviously cigarettes mingling with perfume and booze and I think really a bit of sweat, obviously, for all the dancing. Wow, I just want to be there now. So Kate is a, an exceptional character in what was an exceptional time. Before we go there, let's talk about her formative years. Well, as I said, really interesting. She is not what you expect a nightclub owner or a criminal to be like. And she was born into an upper middle class, respectable family in Dublin. Her father was a doctor, but her father died when she was a baby. Her mother remarried a clergyman and they moved to Lancashire. But I mean, one of the best records we have of her in her own memoirs, which she wrote. She misses chunks out, but she gives quite a good idea of her upbringing. And she talks about going to garden parties. Her mother died when she was seven. So she went to live with her grandmother, two elderly great aunts who had a house in Ireland which was unbelievably called Fairyland 
and she was educated by governesses and she always said that she was a little bit of a rebel. She talks about meeting the Duke of Devonshire when he was over at Lismore Castle and walking around the grounds with him. She received marriage proposals from several people. You know, she was a debutante. So she is not dragged up from the gutter at all. And actually her father uh, was supposed to inherit a very large property in Ireland. I don't know what happened to that. She skirts over her personal finances quite a bit in the book. And they, you know, one minute she's got money, next minute she hasn't. But yeah, she comes from this very respectable family and she wants to actually become a doctor. So she goes to Bedford College, which was a sort of leading college for women's education and starts to study to be a doctor. And then basically her head gets turned. Her sister's going to all these dances and having wearing ball gowns and she loses interest in becoming a doctor. <laughs> you know, I think that's interesting and perhaps something about her intellect sort of ability as a woman and also you know her ambition and eventually she meets after turning down a few marriage proposals including one from a very wealthy man who she doesn't name she accepts marriage to Ferdinand Merrick who is a do- also a doctor and settles into marriage uh, they move to England, settle in South Sea, various places and he actually runs hospitals for people with nerve problems so you know he, he's dealing with certainly during the First World War, deals with um, shell shock cases, things like that. So she tells quite a few interesting stories about women who tried to literally stab her in the back with a knife and taking the inmates for walks in the forest and they all disappear. So there's quite a lot of interesting things. But it also really gives her experience in dealing with difficult situations and not getting too ruffled. So this comes in very useful later in life. Her marriage goes downhill, they separate for a while, then they get back together again, eventually permanently separate. And she kind of takes her children and goes around various seaside towns. As I said, this is all skirted over a little bit in her her memoirs. But the nightclub thing begins to happen when her eldest daughter, May, now she is at college and she gets ill. And this is a time of influenza. So Kate Merrick rushes to her side to be with her, doesn't want to leave her, thinks, right, I'm going to settle down and what can I do? Sees an advert in the paper asking for a business partner to help run tea dancers. And this is a chap called Harry Dalton. And she answers the advert and they go into business together and open their first venue called Dalton's, which is in Leicester Square, next to the Alhambra, prime location. And off she goes. A couple of things that are just as you were talking, I wanted to ask about. So there's so there's potential connection to the Mitfords. I assume like being in sort of society, and you mentioned the Duke of Devonshire. Was there any kind of crossover there with the Mitford sisters? Well, um, so the Mitfords were sort of an, another kind of generation after, really, um, Mrs. Merrick, and, and they were younger than her children as well, really. Maybe not her youngest one, but her daughters. I mean, this is you know really interesting. When she was married, her daughters were going to Rodine, and her sons went to Harrow. So famously, one of the things that she spent her profits on was sending the rest of her children, you know, continuing this premium education for them. So she obviously had high hopes for them. And her second daughter, Dorothy, in, I think, 1926, this is this mid-20s when she's really established as a nightclub queen, marries Baron de Clifford. And then a year later, May, the eldest, marries the Earl of Canoole. And then later on, two of her younger daughters made very good, well-connected marriages as well. Um, the youngest one marries Lord Craven. I mean, it seems a very odd mix, a very odd sort of mingling of the seedy 
and a sort of sublime. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I think that's probably what's so fascinating about that that scene, isn't it? The mix of people. Completely, yeah. It is a mix of people. Um, you know, she writes a lot in her memoirs about how royalty and aristocracy visited it, but businessmen, sportsmen, actors and actresses, but also just, you know, gangsters, proper criminals. There are times she's, you know, she's once punched by somebody, somebody fires a shotgun in one of the clubs. You know, I mean, most of us go, oh, stop this. I'm not doing this anymore, but she carried on, which, uh, you know, I think shows remarkable resilience. And also, like you say, that the money was there. There was a huge incentive because it meant that she could be independent and put her, not only independent, but put her kids through brilliant schools and get them great money. Yeah, she wasn't a widow. Her husband was still very much alive and he outlived her, actually. They were separated and she really was the breadwinner. You know, May decided she was going to study at college and then when she got ill and then her mother opened Dalton's, then um, she began to go into the family business as well. So all the children were in this business as well and are also experiencing this real dichotomy of mingling with the stars, so to speak. Everybody from movie actresses to crowned princes and also finding their mother in the dock at Bow Street Magistrates Court. Brilliant. I mean, so this isn't, it hasn't been made into a book yet. No, apart from her own memoirs. I kind of think of a drama series, like a more gritty House of Elliot. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's right for the picking. So where can you get hold of the memoir? You want to, to read those? Well, I think there might be reprints available online. They don't have all the pictures. I mean, I've got the borrowed book from the London Library, actually, because to get an original copy is quite, is quite pricey. It's worth, if you can get hold of a copy, definitely worth reading. It's fun. You mentioned that she wanted to train to be a doctor, which at the time I would have, that was quite unusual, Um, a woman wanting to, or was it? Quite unusual, but not unknown. But you would have had to have been a certain personality and have a certain confidence about yourself to go ahead and do that. Mm. Um, She also says in her book, I mean, you know, you can write anything you like in your memoirs, can't you? But she says she was the first woman in Ireland to ride a bike. So we can take her word for that or not. I don't know. But it, it does sort of tally, you know, she was born in 1875, I think. And this is, uh, 1890s was when the cycling craze really took off. 1890s was really the time of the new woman and women really beginning to do stuff and just on the sort of brink of the suffrage movement. So all these things are happening. And I think she, despite this fairly conventional upbringing, clearly has a bit of a spark about her. Absolutely. And that then leads her down this path. To give us a backdrop why what she chose to do was so special at that time and the reason that those opportunities came to her. Can you give us a bit of like sort of 1920s? Yeah. I mean, what would I always say? I think people do think of the Roaring Twenties and think, oh, nightclubs happened in the 1920s. But what is very interesting is actually prior to the First World War, that's when nightclubs were really beginning to mushroom in London. And I think it is very much a London phenomenon, these sort of nightclubs, as opposed to dance clubs and large dance halls. But nightclubs are starting around 1913, 1912, 1913. You've got places like Murray's and the 400. Murray's is on Beak Street in Soho. There's Ciro's, Chiro's, however you want to call it, which is on Orange Street behind the National gallery now so there's quite a few places opening up and this is all driven by the american music that's coming over ragtime 
and soon jazz, which is, you know, this is being brought over and gaining pace with the First World War when the Americans begin to come over to Europe, bringing it into Paris, etc. And also there's tango. You know, tango is an enormous craze in 1912. So a new thing happens, and these are tea dancers, you know, tango teas where you go specifically to do this dance. So it's like a craze. It's the equivalent of Charleston in the 20s, the jitterbug, the rave in the 90s. That's what people are doing in 1912. So this is all sort of people seeing opportunities. And these clubs are opening. They are, I suppose, aimed at quite a high-end clientele. They're not cheap, but there will be more ordinary ones where you don't have to be landed gentry or, or a millionaire to enter there but they're not as high profile as some of these clubs and another interesting thing that's happening is out in sort of Maidenhead and Bray summer clubs are opening as well so people can dance outside on the lawns by the River Thames that's a really big thing that's happening so this gains pace during the First World War where people are wanting to forget what's going on so you come out the other side and in 1919, just everybody wants to dance. And I think Mrs. Merrick says in the memoirs, literally everybody wants to dance. It was an obsession with it. If you could find the right formula and find a venue for people to dance, then you had a successful business. And of course, people are just coming out of the First World War yes. and they're wanting to let their hair down and parties. There's that element to it as well, isn't there? Yeah. And, you know, people often say decades don't really get into the decade until you're a couple of years in. But I think in the case of the 20s, it sort of did start in 1919 with this explosion of people wanting to dance and enjoy themselves and forget. It's a really great kind of seedbed for somebody like her to enter the market, so to speak. And like you say, you've got the dance crazies, you've got the GIs that come over and brought the music with them. And as far as like celebrities, the movie industry that was growing and just becoming what it was to become in Hollywood and in London as well. So I suppose it was an exciting time for creative people and for people to be around that scene. Massively exciting. Jazz bands are coming over from America. Some of them are black musicians. You know, there's all this sort of anxiety about white women dancing to music made by black musicians and was this right you know all these sort of prejudices surrounding that yet and so people could buy records and play them on a gramophone and they could roll up the rug at home and dance I mean the first it's not the first jazz band but the first one that kind of really made the news the original Dixieland jazz band first opened at the Hippodrome and caused such a riot that George Roby who was also in the bill said well either they go or I do so they only had one night at the Hippodrome but then they were engaged at the Hammersmith Palais the Palais de Dance at Hammersmith now that was opened in 1918 or 1919 uh, by two Americans who really saw this opportunity new to use this sort of cavernous place where people could dance was a money spinner. And it was, I mean, the opening night, 7,000 people queued to get into it. And it was decorating this fabulous Chinese lanterns and they had the original Dixieland jazz band play there. And they would have jazz bands at either side of the dance hall so that one band could have a rest and the other one struck up. It's a really exciting time to be around and for women if they could find someone to take them they could go out dancing and it I think it you're at a crossroads of what's respectable it's a little bit like people going to concerts listening to bands with long hair in the 60s older generation didn't approve but there's a sort of new younger generation wanting to have fun and another thing that comes in with this is dance hostesses or dance instructresses so men would come to the club and if you were a dance instructress, you were available to dance with somebody so that everybody had someone to dance with. Now, 
this was a job which was tinged with, and when we talk about respectability, sometimes dance hostesses were considered not particularly respectable. But Mrs Merrick always maintained that the girls she knew were very respectable. Is the Hammersmith Palais de Dance still there? That's not the Apollo, is it? No, the Hammersmith Palais, gosh, I mean, it closed down. Probably anyone listening will correct me. It might be 1990s or even the 2000s. Uh, but it was originally a railway depot thing. And then I think it became an ice rink. It was cavernous. It was like an air hanger. So, and then it became a big concert venue. It makes me think of all the different big buildings that came up at that point that are still sometimes still around being used for one thing or another. It's like the Leicester Palais de Dance that my mum talks about going to in the 60s. It would have been built at the same time. And that then became a nightclub in the noughties. And, you know, it's just interesting how these things hopefully still around, but have yeah. different lives. That was the time to go. A lot of them have a good run. They have to reinvent themselves, don't they? But lots of them have sadly lost. But the Palais de Dance, you know, became like a massive big chain around the country. Those were the sort of things that went out beyond London and became popular. So right. most towns and cities wanted their own Palais de Dance. And Mrs. Merrick's just, she's seeing pound signs. She's thinking, okay, I can do this. Not only that, I'm really good at making sure the right people come along because I've got my little black book. A little bit, but I take this with a pinch of salt because obviously this is taken from her own memoirs. And she says when they started Dalton's, they were very naive. And at first they would just pay an entrance fee or subscription fee and then, and didn't charge for drinks. And she would say how they didn't really understand about controlling numbers in the club and maybe stopping people coming in and she did say there were lots of fights rowdy fights and things like that now you can just imagine really so this got a little bit of a reputation this place and eventually it was raided and it wasn't raided for selling drinks after hours because you know she hadn't quite tapped into this lucrative side of the business but it was because the police said there were a number of women who were known to them i.e they were sex workers and that's what they were clamping down on so that was the end of dalton's unfortunately. I guess this is the side that Sora constantly being put into prison one way or another. Yeah. Well, what happened was she claims that she was mortified that the judge called her Dalton's a hell of iniquity or something. And she really just claimed innocence. How much she genuinely knew, who knows. But she wasn't really doing much to do with drink. And she was really abiding by the rules when she did start to sell drinks, always sort of closing at the right time. And then she sort of thought, well, everyone else is staying open beyond the licensing hours. Well, this was her excuse. So why shouldn't I? And that's when it started. And there's a lot of very interesting records at the National Archives, police records, which are reports on raids on clubs and also memos within the police about we understand that she's selling intoxicants out of hours. Please send in some plain clothes police officers or whatever. Lots of information from the police side of things. We're talking a long decade from 1919 until 1932. She is running clubs when she's not in prison. And when she is in prison, her daughters are running them for her. And, you know, she isn't constantly being raided. It sort of goes in fits and starts. So I think like any organisation, I think, um, you know, it's very interesting to consider how committed the police were to clamping down on this. And it will depend who is in charge, who's in charge at the top and who is saying, right, we need to do this. And William Johnson Hicks, when he becomes Home Secretary in, I think, 1924, he really did wage a war against nightclubs generally. So I think there was certainly a renewed vigour to nightclub raids. But they went on during the First World War. It wasn't anything new. They were happening on and off. And in the case of Mrs Merrick, the times that they weren't happening, that aroused suspicion. And that's when it was discovered 
that she was bribing Sergeant Goddard. Interesting. Curious. So it's making me think of also, I just watched the Elvis film as well, when you're talking about how it all being really risque and every older generation think that it was going to corrupt young minds and all the rest of it. It happens again and again and again, doesn't it? And also, like you say, depending on the viewpoint of whoever's in charge, it either trickles down to be seen to be doing something, whether or not it actually does anything, that's another question. You know, you look at it now and you think, oh gosh, does it, was it really that important? <laughs> if you have to keep throwing this woman into prison. But they had to be seen to be effective and she just increasingly, very flagrantly ignored licensing laws. So that's... There was an element of PR. I mean, this is a woman who understands her own public persona. And I think so. I mean, she maintains this sort of slight innocence all through her memoirs. But actually, as I said, every time she was released, there was a huge publicity drive over it. And it just became kind of her brand almost. If this had happened to a woman 20 years before that, she would be cast out onto the street. And nobody would have anything to do with her. But people like to go to the clubs because, obviously, because of the atmosphere, the music, um, the vibe but also because there was that frisson of excitement that it might get raided. You know, you have a fabulous story to tell the next night at dinner, wouldn't you? I think there was definitely an element of that. And when you've been through the First World War at that point, I think there's going to be quite a yeah. few fearless people out there who are just really wanting a good time. And that's all part of the course. Like you said, it's all part of the excitement of the evening, especially when other people are frowning upon it I mean come on that's when you do it more isn't it yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic so where are we at Dalton's has gone down what was her next yeah. for that well she'd also opened one called the Bedford so they both closed then she opened one called Brett's on Charing Road which was that was a dance club and in I think it was the autumn of 1921 she opens the 43 club in Gerrard Street home, home of Dryden which she spends about six pages talking about in her her autobiography and this is sort of the one that she's really renowned for but when it's raided she then has to close it and she reopens it's very confusing knowing how many clubs she had because lots of them had to reopen with different names the 43 at one point had to reopen as props then it became the 43 again i think and the silver slipper club which she opened in 1927 on regent street which is probably the most kind of glamorous and luxurious of her clubs, done at the time when she was being the most profitable. That became the bobbin club and then it became the slip-in club. So she just had to keep being a bit of a ninja, changing the names of these places. She also opened a little club in Golden Square. There was the Riviera in Maidenhead, which I think must have been quite short-lived, but I said tapping into that interest in these upriver places. There's the Folly Berger as well. That opened in 1923 in Newman Street. It was raided, then it became the New Follies, then it became the Broadway Club. So <laughs> she, oh, she also went to Paris in 1925 and opened the Gaiety Club there. She said she was sick of you know, London, went to Paris. And so when you think about it, at that long a period that she was you know, running nightclubs, she certainly kept herself busy. She really did. Right, she did a lot. I think we should start that again. We should do the old out-of-town summer club. I like the idea. I think I saw a couple of pictures when you did a talk, and it just looks stunning outside with chandeliers in, oh, the, in the trees. Oh, really interesting. There's an article in Tatler by me about it, actually. They've done a, a current thing about the Thames and places along there, and so I wrote a little historical bit about it for them. Oh, I'll look up that. That's great. Yeah. So, like you say, she packed in a lot in, in what was just over a decade. And five spells in prison as well. Yeah, but at the same time, I assume it was lucrative enough not only to keep her afloat in prison and to make sure that she wasn't... I mean, obviously, I don't know what Holloway was like in the 1920s, but it can't have been 
that easy. But I guess if you had money and you had connections, perhaps it was easier. Is that a, an assumption? That I, I am not sure about that. She does spend some time talking about her prison. I don't think she was particularly given special treatment at all. I think, um, I don't think she was cruelly treated at all. And she was in there for six months. When she was sentenced after the Goddard case to 15 months hard labour, they let her out after 12 months because by that point she was very frail, very thin. Her health wasn't good. Her daughter, her children were petitioning for her to be released early. In fact, they were asking her, could she go into a nursing home and spend the rest of her sentence there? And actually, in the end, she was let out after 12 months. But that was definitely, it seems, the sentence that broke her health. All right, and how was she at this point then? Well, she died when she was 57, so she was early to mid-50s at this point. Cigarette smoke, nightlife and living maybe on top of everything. I don't know whether she was a particularly sort of big drinker herself, but just that entire lifestyle, I'm sure, isn't terribly wholesome. At the height of everything, you said the silver slipper was the one. Talking about her and what she was aiming for in her lifetime, what do you think she wanted at the time? We've talked about great marriages and education for her children. Do you think that was her main focus, or do you think she just loved being in the mix of things or a bit of both what, what do you think? I think it's a bit of both I think she certainly wanted to look after her children she clearly was a very good mother very much adored by her children and she set them up very nicely despite this rather strange upbringing but I think yeah I think she absolutely loved it when you read her memoirs she name drops all over the place she loved being in the center of things I don't think she was a big show-off or anything to me, she comes across as somebody quite mild-mannered, calm, neat, well-mannered. But I think she was somebody who people would talk to very easily. Talks about royalty confiding in her. Again, you've got to take this with a pinch of salt. But she clearly knew a lot of people. And I think that's a great motivator, isn't it? If you're that way inclined, I think some people want a quiet life. And some people really enjoy the adrenaline of just what's coming next and... This is exciting. And I think that maybe is rooted in that personality that we see early on when she's a young woman. And obviously she's having conversations with these people when alcohol is involved, like having fun. So I'm sure she had quite a few secrets up her sleeve that she kept. Oh, I'm sure. You know, she talks about how Lord Loughborough, who was a really like high profile here at the time and he eventually committed suicide and a big drinker and all sorts of things she said how when he visited the club he would just sit in her office with her and chat he probably did i'm sure that was a very nice thing for him to do and then she talks about a time when prince nicholas of romania was missing in the club i can't remember which one it is actually i think it was the 43 they find him in the kitchen and the, the chef is feeding him chips straight from the fryer <laughs> so i think you know these people who had such rarefied lives probably quite enjoyed the more earthy atmosphere of some of her clubs and just very warm welcome they received freedom along with that sort of dash of glamour of course dash of excitement dash of risque dash you've never know what's going to happen celebrities playing up close i guess you've got amazing musicians and you mentioned hutch at one point teddy brown was often the house band at the 43 and teddy brown was like great sort of famous larger than life literally band leader yeah he was definitely one of them and then sometimes bands would come from other places and have a little play as well there's one anecdote where one of the clubs Rudolph Valentino went to the bar because they were so busy when he was walking back with a tray of drinks he was mistaken for a waiter <laughs> I loved all these little stories she tells. brilliant obviously this is pure from what you know what do you think she wanted her legacy to be at the time do you think she was aware of being a pioneer I think so I don't think she was a pioneer of nightclubs as such but she was 
probably a pioneer of women in nightclubs. Weren't many of those around. And I think she saw herself as a bit of a, a soldier against ridiculous laws as she saw them. She wanted people to have a good time and she probably remember her as being the sort of centrifuge of that, I suppose enabling people to have this great time and obviously to make money she wasn't stupid that was our view on her then what do you think her legacy is now looking back at her life and work well i think it does crop up on the internet and things and also her profile has been raised by the recent national archives exhibition where they recreated the 43 club and when i heard this was happening obviously we supply images to the national archives and we supply quite a few for the 1920s exhibition and when they mentioned what they were doing and they were recreating 43 Club, I went, oh my goodness, you're doing Kate Merrick. You know, I said, I talk about her sometimes. So I was really pleased that she was getting a bit of a moment in the spotlight. It's not like she's unknown, but I don't think most people will have heard of her. She's not a famous actress, but I think she would have been delighted that she was remembered in that way with this exhibition 100 years on. And I think she would like to be remembered as a businesswoman, as a great networker, and as somebody that people liked and enjoyed being with. I think she is quite incredible. It's really hard looking through 21st century eyes and thinking, well, was this that unusual? Well, yes, it was. I mean, fancy choosing to go against the authorities and spend so much time in prison. I mean, that's it's quite strange. Not many people want to do that, particularly in the 1920s in Holloway. Yeah. Because surely there would have been a way that she pretty much could have stepped back from the limelight more and been a little bit more stealth-like. She could have done that if she'd have wanted to and had less profile, but still earned the money, you would think, if she'd have wanted to. I don't think there's a huge legacy today because people don't know her. Right. I hope that her profile's been raised by this exhibition. And as we've been saying, wouldn't it be great for there to be a book if Lindy wrote the book? Or to me, like the more we speak about it, it's just got TV drama written all over it hasn't it i mean when there's a bit part for rudolph valentino you I mean you're just talking about a series there it's endless isn't it yeah there's another question on that note has she been depicted in anything has she been portrayed in any tv or film yeah i, I saw that note about 10 minutes before we started speaking and I, I, i'm not sure i think that 43 club mm. was depicted as is it the 100th club in one of Evelyn Ward novel, might be declining for. So I think there was that. There have been things which have skirted on the edge of her kind of world. So Peaky Blinders, you know, and the nightclub scene that goes on there and, you know, people into drugs and drug trafficking. And that all went on. And she talks about that in her memoirs. And then Stephen Polyakov, who did what was the drama series where it was said like a Café de Paris type place. You know, that's... It's almost like she hasn't quite been depicted directly, but you could imagine she's the inspiration. But I think she really should be a star in her own right. I think it's time. I think she deserves that recognition because she was such a strong character. It would be easy to write, you would think. Right, well, that's my mission there. I have to get on with it. This. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe we could call it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about treatment. For me, that's one of the main motivations is just use all of this amazing information all these stories that we highlight and get them out there in one way or another whatever suits whether it be a play whether it be a tv series a film documentaries or all the above that's the way to do it i'll book you in for a session and we can talk about the treatment do you have an and you've mentioned a few anecdotes but is there a specific kate merrick anecdote that you really love (laughs) well i actually quite like something very early in the memoirs when she talks about how innocent and naive she was as a girl and she was kissed by somebody. She said to her sister, does this mean I'm going to have a baby? 
And the sister said, oh, I hope not. You know, isn't that interesting to go from innocent to running nightclubs where she's accused of prostitutes being sort of making up half of her clientele? And then I love the, the one where she talks about, I think, again, it might be Prince Nicholas. Is it Prince Nicholas of Romania or Prince Nicholas of Greece? One of the Prince Nicholas's dancing with Tallulah Bankhead in the silver slipper so furiously that they cracked a tile on the glass floor. It had an illuminated glass floor, like on Saturday Night Fever, but in 1927, and they cracked one of the things. <laughs> now I want to know how that worked. So it, would it be the same kind of tech that they had in the 70s? That, that's, it sounds dangerous. I, I, I don't know, but they were a thing in the 1920s because they had them up in Maidenhead as well. It was obviously a real craze. Yeah, but you're, I'm going out of my um, knowledge zone here. With, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Electric, you know, illuminated dance floors. <laughs> Brilliant. Now that gives us a real image. Tilly the Bankhead, she's another one, man. I love her. Her memoirs, I have to honestly read those because the London year is fascinating, you know, and she writes, she writes exactly how you imagine. She's like sort of May West on speed, you know, incredible. So really, really, really interesting. And she talks about being squired by all these handsome young men around London going to all these clubs. Yes. So she's, you know, definitely a face. Actually, does Kate Merrick come up in other people's diaries and memoirs a lot? You mentioned Hutch, I think, in the talk that I heard you. I've got his, yes. maybe not his memoirs, but a book about him that I haven't read yet. And I'm just thinking that she might pop up in there. I haven't read Hutch's. It's a biography of him, isn't it? Which I once ordered and it never arrived which reminded me of that um <laughs> so i don't know actually i don't think their paths ever crossed in terms of him being a cabaret actor at any of her clubs i don't think i might be wrong and she doesn't mention him actually she has got an entry in the oxford dictionary of national biography and i did notice in the bibliography at the end it's quite an interesting sounding book by some peer you'll have to look it up but that sounded quite interesting and you know the thing to do is to like spend a few hours somewhere like the london library and just go, oh, that's my Lord, whoever. Let's have a look at this. Because you often find these things through kind of just look. Reading any actresses and actors from that period who wrote memoirs, it's often a good place to look. The trouble is you go, oh, yes, there is a reference to it. And then it's like one line. And the answer to that is I don't know. But I hope to find some more. It'd be good, wouldn't it? Well, well, we'll need it for the TV series. So we're going to have to Yeah, we will. Yeah. <laughs> so if Kate were a superhero, what would her superpower be? Or powers, you can say. She could have two. One might be time travel to the 21st century, where she wouldn't have to worry so much about licensing laws. But then perhaps she'd still ignore them and carry on beyond 2am or whenever. Probably most useful to her is to have the equivalent of an invisibility cloak to go over any drinks that are on the table. <laughs> you can immediately go zoom when the police raid the club. That would have saved her a couple of years in prison. Maybe save the blushes of people that she's with as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, a lot of them ended up in court as well. Brilliant. And if she were a top trump card, what would her highest scoring and lowest scoring categories be in one? I think that her low score, I, do you know what? It might have to be business sort of acumen because in the end, she didn't have very much money left. She lost a lot of money, but her top score would probably have to be networking, I would say best networker so she lost the money how right if you do get hold of a memoir there's a whole sort of chapter about what it costs financially to run a club really interesting actually again it's written from the point of view i suppose of defending yourself but anyone say well what did you do with the half a million pounds that passed through your books 
in those 13 years. But she talks a lot about things that you might not imagine. I mean, she says she would spend something like £300 a year on cosmetics for the ladies' powder room. So they would provide the finest quality face powder, lipstick and rouge for guests to use. I mean, that's just one example, but she talks about the cost of getting the best bands and all sorts of things. And then she says she was swindled by certain people and then she would lose a lot of money when she had to close clubs. She had stocks and shares, which plummeted. So, you know, a, a variety of problems, maybe not all her fault, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but certainly in the, you know, in the kind of the best years, mm. she was raking it in. So she was living life in the fast lane so that, you know, it's, it's the comings and goings in that way, isn't it? But also yeah. she never really invested it by the sounds of it, apart from in her children. But I think she did make some investments and they weren't always particularly successful. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, there you go. Uh, and yeah, there were her children's education, which probably took quite a fair chunk, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned your article in Tatler. It's in the August issue. You know, I do all sorts of things. I'd love to send people to my website, but I'm so busy writing things. I never have time to do my website. I mean, the latest two books, if you're interested in this, then the last book that I wrote is at the London Hippodrome, which obviously was very close to a lot of Kate Merrick's venues. And it's called The London Hippodrome, an Entertainment of Unexampled Brilliance. And then rather sort of separate to that, also last year, I wrote a book about John Hassel, the poster artist and illustrator, best known perhaps for the Skegness is So Bracing poster. So those are my two most recent books. Also, if you're interested in this kind of history, then a couple of years ago, I had a book out which is called Holidays in High Society, which is all about posh people in the 1920s, etc., going to places like the Riviera and Baden and Samaritz. So that might be of interest. I'm often working for Tatler and various places, and I pop up occasionally doing talks. So I will get my website done. It's lucindagosling.co.uk. Well, when this is launched, this podcast, hopefully it'll be perfect timing and people will be checking it yeah. out. Thank you, Lucy. So before we sign off, you mentioned the Hippodrome. My best friend from childhood works at the Hippodrome has them for years she uh, looks after the VIPs there and I know Simon because we all come from and you mentioned Lord Loughborough but we all come from Corn near Loughborough which is a very small little village in Leicestershire so the Hippodrome obviously there's so much performance history there it is incredible when I was first had conversations about it like the first conversation was is there enough history and I thought well I don't know but I went away and my goodness there is I couldn't fit it all in I couldn't fit it all in. It's incredible. And it goes through so many different phases from this circus of variety in the 1900s to review and comedy musicals, talk of the town, yeah. string fellow years, um, and its current incarnation as Casino. And you've obviously got Magic Mike there. Yeah, incredible history. Charlie Chaplin to Channing Tatum. It's just got it all. That is it. That is it. Absolutely. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin was in Cinderella, the very first pantomime at the Hippodrome. I'd definitely check that out. Ah, oh, awesome. So, so, I hope he likes the book. I mean, they, they did put it up in lights outside the Hippodrome and everything. So oh, they, you know, they sell it there. I think you and I should go and have a drink at the old boozy tea rooms and discuss. Sure. What we're that's where I had my book launch. <laughs> We've got loads in common. <laughs> no, definitely. I'd be really good. All right, done. Just want to say an official thank you very much for, for being on the podcast Lucy and talking to us about Mrs Merrick she's someone who I think the world needs characters like that in it definitely really enjoyed talking to you about it hey there it's me Lindsay just wanted to add a little request if I may please make sure you subscribe share the podcast and tell all your friends about it remember to follow us on Instagram which is at heroin underscore city if you've enjoyed the podcasts please rate us with a stupendous rating so that other people can hear about what we're up to thank you see you soon inside the gates of heroin city